Now, we're going to take the next step in this series, and I want to talk about something that really affects all of us. I want to talk about contentment in our work today. Um, now, that's a really important thing for us to understand because most of us have dreams, most of us have goals and hopes and career desires, and most of us are probably still chipping away at it. Um, some of us maybe have quote-unquote made it, but most of us are still working towards it. Some of us are downright unhappy in our work. You're at a dead-end job that's going nowhere or you just hate getting up in the morning. Some of you might be getting the Sunday blues right now, thinking about tomorrow, and I, I know that, that feeling. The question is, though, is our life on hold until you achieve the thing? Until you make partner, publish the thing, start the business, get a certain number of sales, get the degree, retire, whatever your career goal is, are we allowed to enjoy life in the meantime? Is it possible for us to enjoy life in the meantime? Can we be at peace or does that all have to wait? And even deeper, what happens when you make it? And if you talk to people who have quote unquote made it, you will find that their testimony is pretty unanimous. What happens when you make it and you find out that everything in life isn't suddenly perfect? How can we be at peace? When will enough ever be enough? Now, this message is really personal for me right now because um, I'm at a point in my life where I think I can say with integrity, I have never worked so hard at achieving a dream of mine as I am right now. And simultaneously, I have never been so content in my day job as I am right now. And I have had a lot of jobs. My first job, I started like listing them out. My first job was I had a paper route when I was a kid. That's real. I did. I know that makes it sound like I grew up in the 1930s, but I actually did that. Um, in high school, I made extra money by tutoring um, kids. I did academic uh, tutoring. My first like real job with an actual, you know, where they withheld taxes and stuff was um, I was a laborer for a crew that rehabbed historic buildings in downtown Cincinnati and turned them into these posh loft apartments. And the first task they gave me was they were changing these um, plaster walls. They were exposing the brick and making these really beautiful exposed brick walls. To do that, we had to just knock all the plaster down off these brick walls. And behind the plaster was over 100 years of caked soot from the coal burning days. And so at the end of those shifts, we looked like we had been cleaning chimneys all, all day. And my job was, after they knocked all the plaster down and we scooped it up with snow shovels and got it in the dumpster, my job was they gave me a putty knife and I cleaned off each brick individually, the little bit of plaster on this brick. And I did that for about the first two weeks of that job, working inches from my face, eight plus hours a day. I remember the night about two weeks in when I came home to my parents' house after dark and I looked out on their front lawn and the tips of the grass were frosted in the moonlight and my head kind of started to spin and their front yard looked like a brick speckled with plaster. And I was like, I got to get, I got to get out of here. I cannot do this anymore. I did a lot of different laborer uh, type jobs. I worked on a roofing crew. I did uh, landscaping for a couple of seasons. Um, the hardest one was I was a laborer for a crew that was uh, a bricklaying crew that was laying block making a parking garage downtown, and um, I was feeding, my job was to feed two masons, block and mortar, and eventually I got to where, when I got good at it, I could feed three masons, block and mortar, and basically what that meant was I ran over to the, the pile and picked up two cinder blocks, 25 pounds each, and came over and, and stacked a course for them so they were ready. 
That got rough when they were up on the scaffolding. You'd have to haul those things up over your, over, over, all day long, over and over again. I'd mix up the mortar, which is very heavy, with this big, long shovel, bring pails over, and they would have a wet board up on the scaffolding, and I would sling the mortar up over my head, and you, you, aim, you had to get really good aim to like pop that little shovel full of mortar right onto their wet board. And then they wouldn't like the consistency, it'd be too grainy or whatever. And keeping those guys fed, two or three masons, was just boom, boom, block, block, mortar, 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 block, block, mortar, mortar. I would get home, and I could barely lift my hand to the doorknob, and then barely pinch the doorknob hard enough to turn it to get the door open to get back inside. Lots of food industry, um, every aspect of the restaurant business, hosting, serving, dishwasher, line cook, fry cook, prep cook, assistant manager, delivery guy. I met my wife delivering pizzas for Papa John's Pizza. <laughs> so uh, if that's not enough to convince you, there might be another layer to your work right now going on that's all kinds of things going on and jobs that may seem like they don't have that much value um, to you. Um, I worked as a pastor at my home church, um, did an internship there, helped them start a campus. Um, I worked on a team that helped plant a church in, in Manhattan. Um, right now my day job is I teach math to fifth graders um, in, uh, uptown in Inwood. Um, at different points of my life, I felt like I was doing exactly what God had called me to do, and other times I felt like I was doing what I had to do or, or to, to make my life work or to be able to do what God was calling me to do elsewhere. Um, about two years ago, though, when I, when I turned 40, I started to do some uh, reflecting on my life, as you do, and I asked myself the question, if I died now, this is a very 40-year-old question to ask yourself, but if I died now, would I, what regrets would I have? Is there anything that I've left undone? And I mean stuff that's under my control. And the, weirdly, what surprised me was the only thing that really rose up was there was this fantasy novel that I've always wanted to write since I was in high school. I've done some writing. I've published nonfiction before, but this fiction that I'd gotten 40 or 50 or 60 pages into several times since I was a senior in high school but never finished, I really felt like if I don't write that book, I would actually really feel regret. And that started me on this journey where I have been learning the craft. Of course, there's so much more to it than I even knew, and I knew a little bit about it. And um, drafted this book, completely tore it down, rewrote it, tore it down, rewrote it again, workshopped it chapter by chapter over the course of a year with some writing buddies, critique partners, beta readers. Um, it's finally getting to the point where I've begun to submit it. I'm looking for representation, which opened up a whole new Pandora's box of the publishing industry and how that works and this new skill set of how to write a query letter and a blurb and all these things that I didn't really fully know about. And I can say, honestly, I am working like I have never worked before. Uh, time that I would have wasted before, I'm writing a book on my phone on the train. I'm, I'm working like I've never worked before at a dream, and I've never been as content as I am right now at my day job. I really feel content at my work. It's not the bullseye of what I'm supposed to be doing in life, but it's, it's touching something that I'm supposed to be doing in life, which is investing in people, and especially investing in young people. Now, God has brought me there kind of kicking and screaming. I've had to go through some bad stuff, job loss and bad circumstances and some really painful experiences to get to this place where I am. I offer this message to you in hopes that maybe I could save you a little bit of pain. It is possible to be at peace, to be content, to be enough where you are now and also have goals and dreams. 
which is where I need to start this message. I first need to kind of dismantle this false idea of what contentment is because our culture has a very odd view of what contentment means. If you listen to the way we'll use that word, you'll sometimes hear people say, yeah, his, his job is terrible, it's not going anywhere, uh, but I guess he's just content. Or, yeah, that relationship he's in is really dysfunctional, but I guess he's, he's, just, he's just content. But he's not content. He might be complacent, or he might have settled, or he might be afraid, but he's not content. That's not what contentment is. And contentment is not at all exposed to trying and striving and hoping and learning and working and achieving. There's no contradiction there whatsoever. And I would even go so far as to say that our own sin and ego and stuff keeps us back from um, being content more often than spurs us to try to achieve. A lot of times we're afraid to do the thing that we know we're supposed to do, or we're afraid to try and fail, or we're afraid to take those steps because we don't really have the faith that it's going to be okay, that, that we can fail in this relationship with God, that we can try it, that He'll be with us. So there's nothing wrong or sinful about making moves. In fact, if, if you're not supposed to make the moves in your own life, who is supposed to do it? I mean, if I'm not, if I'm not the one who's responsible for learning how to do what I, what's in my heart, what I feel like God wants me to do, and trying and making some moves, who is supposed to do that for me? Um, now, when you're a believer, it's different. You, you hold what you think you want with an open hand because you learn that you don't always know what you want. And sometimes um, God knows what you want better than you do. Now, I'll say that for myself. God knows what I want better than I do. And more to the point, the things that God wants for me are better than the things that I want for myself. So when you're a believer, you hold all that with an open hand, you submit it all to God, you really do pray, your will be done, not my will be done. And yet, that's not a totally passive thing. As you begin to discern your purpose and calling, I still have a responsibility to pursue it, to let God do it through me, and to try to learn and step into the thing that He has for me. So there's no contradiction between contentment and trying. Contentment is not complacency, it's not settling. This is what contentment is. Contentment is the ability to enjoy life now. Contentment is being at peace. Contentment is being enough. And the problem with more is more is never enough. Enough is a state of mind. It's a state of mind that Jesus offers to us, free for the taking in the gospel. Part of the good news of Jesus uh, that He offers to you for no reason other than He loves you more than you can imagine is that you can be at peace now. You can be content now regardless of what your circumstances are. And this is something that those of us who are chipping away at the dream need to know while we're chipping away at the dream. And those of us who have quote-unquote made it to some level and have discovered maybe to your own horror that it didn't fix anything, that that was too much to ask from any job or any career. Contentment is separate from our circumstances. It's a different skill set, and that's what I want to talk about today. Here's how we're going to do it. We need to talk first about, uh, we need to unpack a little bit about why God doesn't just give you your dream job right now, which is a really important question. Like, why the wait? What is the point? And I'm not, I can't totally unpack that, but I'm going to touch on a couple of important things. Then we need to talk about the secret to contentment 
which I know sounds like the title of a best-selling self-help book, but that's actually, that's actually the language of Scripture. Scripture says there is a secret to contentment. We're going to look at it today. And then lastly, I want to apply that secret specifically to our work, which um, means an important change in perspective that enables us to begin to be content now. We don't have to wait to start to enjoy our life until X, Y, or Z happens. Okay, so first, why the wait? Why doesn't God just give us our dream job right now? And there's a lot of reasons, and we could probably spend a lot of time on it, but there's two big ones I want to focus on. One I'm just going to touch on, because you can go listen to the podcast. Jordan really explored this first one in the last couple of messages, and you can catch up on that. But the first one is that this is a fallen world. This is not an imperfect world. Or this is not a perfect world. It's an imperfect world. Things don't always go the way God wants them to go. People make choices. People do things that God does not want them to do. I think this week could convince any of us that that's true. Things happen that God doesn't want to happen because He gives us, he gives us freedom. We live in an imperfect world, and this is the hardest part to swallow because it means we're not in control, but just there, some things just don't happen even though maybe God wished they would because He gave the freedom for them not to happen. And the reason why that's so important is you need to know as with any hard thing in life or any suffering, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. It doesn't mean God's punishing you. It doesn't mean there's some magical lesson you've got to learn, and if you could just figure it out, then God would set you free from this job that you hate. Uh, it doesn't mean um, that, uh, that God doesn't care about you or He isn't intimately involved with you. It means that the world doesn't work the way that it does. And sometimes things happen for reasons we can't really understand. And part of what God is doing for us and in us in this life is teaching us that we can't ever be content in anything in this world. This world is broken. The second thing that we need to understand about why God doesn't just give you your dream job now is that maybe we're not ready. Maybe we need to be changed a little bit. I have a buddy who came to the city to make music, and we were at a little spot, and somebody knew somebody, and they invited him on stage to jam with them, and he didn't have the chops. It was kind of painful for him. It was painful for me. Now, I don't think you only get one shot. I think people that say that, it's ridiculous. Life is full of opportunities. You get lots of opportunities. You can fail, you can blow it, and you get another chance. But at some point, you do have to be ready for the chance when it comes. And if that's true with a skill set, like playing the guitar, how much more true is it of my own character? God, God maybe is trying to change me. Maybe we're not ready. Maybe we're not ready for the burden of responsibility. Maybe we're not ready for the pressures of success, the temptations and the hate of success. Maybe we're not ready. Look at Scripture. Look at how God prepares people that does big things. Moses, God, God called him. He made him discontent with the way his people were being treated in slavery in Egypt. And Moses took matters into his own hands. He tried to defend one of his own countrymen, killed a guy in the process, fled to the wilderness as a fugitive, and God kept him there for 40 years. As long as I've been alive, he was serving as a shepherd of sheep in the wilderness. And then then he became the shepherd of God's people. Paul, the undisputed heavyweight church planting champion of history. When Paul became a believer as an adult, 
He started his ministry, and Luke, who records his ministry in the book of Acts, spends, catch this, 16 verses, it's a chunk about this big, on the first 14 years of Paul's ministry, about a verse a year. Then he needs 16 chapters to share everything God did through Paul in the last 10 years of his ministry. I want to say that again, 16 verses, first 14 years, 16 chapters, last 10 years. It's as if Luke is saying, while it was important and formative, I can kind of tell you everything that Paul accomplished in the first 14 years of his ministry in a half a chapter. But I need 16 chapters to talk about everything God did through this man's life in the last 10 years of his ministry. There is a really weird lie in our culture about the overnight success. You get the big break and, you're, and, and you talk to people that are successful. It does not work that way. We need to be prepared. We need to be changed. This calls for patient trust in the one who knows what he's doing in our life. Now, I'm not saying like if you're in a terrible job or you're being mistreated that you shouldn't try to make moves. By all means, uh, pray about it. Talk to your Christian friends. Be wise. Make moves. But also understand that no matter where you are, there's something that God can teach you. There's something that God can do in you to prepare you for what comes next. Part of this is just how we learn. I I, um, I didn't get the, the classroom management skills that I have now and that I'm continually getting better and better at, primarily through things that I read or things that people told me, although those were part of it and they were helpful. But there was a time when I could have told you the right thing to do in a different circumstance in a classroom and not been able to actually do it. That there's a difference between like knowing the right thing to do and being changed so that you actually become the right thing to do. So that when the heat is on, you just do it instinctively. It's a very, very different thing. And it's, I'm just, I'd ask you to just question whether there are some things in you that are being changed to make you into the kind of person who's able to do the things that God has called you to do and able to enjoy the things that God is calling you to do. So, having said all that, of why God doesn't just give us our dream job now, then, then the question is, okay, so then what's the secret to contentment? If it's not the circumstance, if, if, if I can be content right now, if I can be at peace right now, if I can be enough right now, what's the secret? And for that, we need to turn to Paul because he writes the secret in Scripture. Now, a quick note on who Paul is. This guy has been through everything. If you want to talk about circumstances, there's no one that's been through bigger ups and bigger downs than this guy. He has preached to thousands of people and borne great fruit and then also been literally whipped out of town. He has been um, mistaken for a god in one of the islands that he landed in and then also nearly stoned to death. He has testified in the throne rooms of kings and been dragged off in chains. He has eaten at wealthy estates and slept out in the fields. I mean, in the course of his ministry, he has gone through ups and downs. And as he writes these words, he's in prison for his ministry, and this is what he writes from his prison cell. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Here it is. This is the secret, according to Paul. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. 
According to Paul, the secret to being content in any and every situation is not the situation, it's the relationship with God, that He can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Now, there's been some really interesting research recently that kind of supports this, some longitudinal studies about like lottery winners and people that get married and have other positive things happen in their life. And for a while, the research really went back and forth. Like, if you'll Google um, lottery winners, you'll find studies that sort of support like, in general, people are happier if they win the lottery. You'll also find studies that kind of support like people's lives fall apart. I mean, like their brother murders them, their wife leaves them, they commit suicide. I mean, horrible things happen when people win the lottery. Over the years, it, the, the studies have seemed to kind of settle out to this, that by and large, what happens when people win the lottery is after a temporary emotional boost, they return to the same level of happiness they were before they won the lottery. That if you were content before, now you're a content millionaire. If you were discontent before, now you are a discontent millionaire. It's so hard for us to believe on this side of it because it seems like it would fix so many problems, but we can't see the problems that it can't fix. Um, same thing with marriage. People that get married, there's a temporary boost. It lasts about six months, what they say in the research, and then people tend to return to the previous pre-married state of happiness. So if you're, if you're at peace when you're not married, then you'll be at peace when you are married. If you're not at peace when you're not married, then you won't be at peace when you are married. And, and why is this? It's because we're asking from work, from marriage, from things, stuff that work and marriage and things cannot do for us. We're making idols of things, literally asking things to fulfill us in ways that only God can. This is too much to ask. It's too much to ask of a job or a career or a goal. It's too much to ask of a relationship or a place. It's too much to ask of a thing for it to fulfill everything about your life. Not to say that it wouldn't be better, of course, pursue your dreams. It would be fantastic to get out of the bad job and do the thing you really want to do. It would help, but it cannot put, make you at peace. That is a different skill set that we have to develop parallel to our outside circumstances. And if we don't, what a tragedy to make it and not be happy because you find out you still have a rebellious teenager. You still have a hard time facing your dad at Thanksgiving. You still have that scary biopsy or the scary diagnosis that you still have to die. And we, these things do not have the power to give us what our souls deeply crave. That, for that, you can only get that from Him. And you have it now. You can do all things through Him who gives you strength. The Holy Spirit of God has made your body His temple. The kingdom of heaven is within you. You can talk to Him now. He will listen to you now. He will respond to the things that you say to Him and the things that you ask Him for right now. Now, He will give you the strength that you need to be content now. There is a secret to contentment, a secret hidden in plain sight. It is something that Jesus has given us through His life, death, and resurrection for no other reason than that He loves you and He wants to be with you, and you have it right now. You don't have to wait until the thing comes together. You don't have to wait till you make partner or you sell the thing or whatever. You can have it right now, whatever your circumstance is. Now, we could 
talk a lot about how to be content with what you have and where you are and who you have, etc. But today in the Faith and Work series, I really want to zero in on how this impacts our work. And for that, I want to turn to another scripture that Paul also wrote because it involves an important change in perspective. These are also words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving." So Paul is saying, whatever you do, whether, whether you, you hate your job, love your job, it's a stepping stone to something, you're working at your dreams, or you've made it, whatever you do, work at it for the Lord, not as for human masters. So the secret to contentment is not changing the work, it's changing who we're working for. And if you can make that subtle but profound shift in perspective, it will become a seed in your heart that will begin to grow into a peace that passes all understanding. Do your work for Him. Another way to say that is be faithful. Be faithful in your work now. Um, now, that means a lot. One thing that happens when you're faithful is you, you can learn what Jesus taught, that if you're faithful with little, maybe you'll be faithful with much. But if you're not faithful with little, you're not going to be faithful with much. I learned this in a way I didn't even realize I was learning it when I, when I did my internship at my home church when I was in seminary. They invited me and a buddy of mine to do a preaching internship. And on the day that they offered us this internship, they explained to us, you're not going to preach in this preaching internship, which was hilarious to me and my buddy because it's a preaching internship. They were like, maybe we'll let you do like the young adult service at the end of the two years if we feel like you're ready, but probably not. So it was like a preaching internship that just gave us, like, we could tell people we had a preaching internship, but it was no, like, actual preaching. Now, what they did offer us, though, was the chance to preach at the chapel, the Wednesday night chapel service, which in my home church was about 25 gracious old saints who had been going to church twice a week since they translated the Bible into English. And <laughs> me, me and my buddy went and we tried to preach to them, and they were I, these people are dear to me, but that was a crotchety lot of Christians, man. They had some strong opinions about what a sermon was supposed to be. And my buddy, quite frankly, was not having it. It wasn't worth it to him. It wasn't enough people. It wasn't relevant. It, he just, he phoned it in, and he did his two-year non-preaching, preaching internship. For whatever reason, I tried. I listened to their advice. I tried to institute it. And I got to the point where I would come in like, all right, y'all, it's 19 minutes like you told it, me it needed to be so you don't fall asleep. I have seven points, and they all start with C. Boom! And I just did my absolute best to be faithful with the little bit that I had. And you want to know what? Towards the end of the two years, they asked me to preach at the young adult service, and then they let me do that again, and then they let me preach at all the services, and then they offered me a job. Now, there's some other things that went into that. But there was something important that I learned there about if, if God has given you this thing, be faithful in that. Why do you think, why would you be faithful with more if you can't be faithful with a little? Be faithful. It's, it, remember who you're working for. You're not, you're not working for them. You're working for Him. You're, you're working for a different type of boss. Remember who you're working for. He, this is a boss that, A, he, he doesn't get mad at you when you fail. He doesn't get mad at you when you mess up. They can get mad at you. He doesn't get mad at you. He's patient with you. But also, you can't fake it with him. You can't spin it. You can't cover it over with a little, little bit of pizzazz. He knows. 
He knows whether you gave it your best. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. It's simultaneously the most forgiving, gentle boss you'll ever have and the most the strictest, the most penetrating, the one that sees right into your heart. Remember who you're, you're working for and remember who you are. Be faithful, but, but also the other meaning of that word is important. Be full of faith. Remember who you are. Remember your value. That, that God, the value He's placed on you is His own lifeblood, His own life. He would trade nothing short of everything that He has to have you. So there's nothing in your life that can take away from your identity, that can take away from who you are. There's nothing in your life that can degrade you. There's no work that can degrade you. You can only lift work up. There's a custodian at the school where I teach who, um, from little things that he said, I'm I'm pretty sure he's a believer, um, and also because he has a big banner on the back of his truck that says, Jesus te amo, so that kind of gave me a little like, (laughs) you know, and... um, But he doesn't really like wear that on his sleeve. What you do notice is when you trudge through the neighborhood that is just mounded with garbage and nastiness from the the Saturday or Sunday night parties of people clinging to the weekend, and you come around the corner onto the block of my school, it is pristine. He cleans up that block to make it worthy for these young men and women who are coming to learn. And you feel the difference every day. He fights this fight against the litter, and you feel the difference when you come on the block. And there's just something so powerful about someone that takes pride in their work, whatever their work is. That work doesn't degrade him. He lifts it up. Jesus was a handyman. That's how God prepared him for his ministry. He was like the son of your super. He's the guy that would like show up at your door with a bucket of rusty tools and a little knee pad and lean under your sink. That's what Jesus did. That was his work. Paul was a tent maker. He made tents, literally, with his hands. That's how he fed himself. And far from being pulled down by that profession, he lifted that profession up so much that it's become a term to describe a minister that has a day job. Now, 2,000 years later, among 2 billion believers, that job didn't bring Paul down. Paul lifted that profession up so much that now tent maker means something. It's taken on a meaning. There is no work that can degrade you or pull you down. You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. When Jesus took off his clothes and got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet, he didn't lose any dignity by that. He gave them dignity. He rose them up that they were worthy of having their feet washed by the only begotten Son of God. When you do whatever you do, nothing can pull you down. You are lifting the world up. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you're working for. When I, when I dream about what kind of church renaissance could be, yes, I think about a place where people are making moves and enjoying success and cheering each other on. But more importantly, I I dream about a place where people are are poised, centered, balanced, at peace, able to enjoy life today. Enough. Do you have any idea how desperate the world is for people who are content? Do you have any idea how unusual and countercultural it is to meet someone who's okay? To meet someone who is enough? If you would learn contentment, which is separate from your circumstances, and you can start it right now today, if you would learn it, you would not only enjoy your own life better, but you would have a profoundly positive effect on the people around you.
So for your own sake and for the sake of those around you, learn this thing from Jesus, this thing that he offers you in the gospel. Learn how to be content. You cannot get contentment from work, but you can be content in your work if you learn to do all things through him who gives you strength. I want to pray that we will. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do um, nothing short of a supernatural work in our own hearts and minds and give us a peace that passes all understanding. This unique ability to strive and work for better and enjoy the journey at the same time. I pray that this would become a, a characteristic feature of our life with you, that we would um, walk in a, in a close conversational relationship with you, and that even right now, this moment, there'd be people in this room who would say, you know what, Jesus, from now on out, I'm going to do this for you. Wherever I am right now, this job, I'm doing it for you now. I'm not working for them anymore, and I'm not working for me. I'm working for you. I pray that in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>